Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor. I'm thrilled to be back with you for Series 6 and excited to share a really wide range of conversations with writers working in all kinds of genres. Today, we begin with Janice Hallett. Many of you will know her best-selling crime novels, which have completely turned the genre on its head. Janice uses transcripts, scripts, emails, messages, letters, articles, and prose to tell her incredibly complex, very humorous, and page-turning mysteries. Her latest novel, The Mysterious Case of the Appleton Angels, is out on January 19th. Janice and I take a deep dive into her really varied writing career from speechwriting, journalism and screenwriting to her switch to novels and how all of that experience has informed how she approaches crime fiction. I loved chatting with Janice about her writing process, how her characters develop and the heavy work she does in a huge structural edit after her first draft. Those of you who are particularly interested in dialogue and in redrafting, this is definitely an episode for you. It's great to be back in your ears for a new year. Um, I'm, if you enjoy this episode, please do leave a rating and review. It really does help others to find the podcast. Enjoy the episode. Janice, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, thank you, Penny. It's an honour to be here. Um, I was just telling you before we started recording, I was so thrilled when the um, when the proof arrived. I was so excited to read it uh, that um, I was so excited that your your publicist said that we could do this this recording in December. This is um, we're recording in December, um, but it will be going out in January because I was dying to read it. Absolutely dying to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back a little bit and talk a bit about um, what your career so far. This, the, Alperton, the Mysterious Case of the Alpton Angels is your third novel, um, but you've spent your entire career writing in various different forms. Um, you've been a journalist, you've been a speechwriter, you're a screenwriter. Um, I guess I just wanted to start by saying, obviously, I can really see your work as a screenwriter in all of your work, your incredible dialogue. But in terms of all of your writing experience, what is it that you, like what informs how you now write novels, do you think the most? Do you know, I'm not sure. I would have to say in the first instance, it would be the script writing. That was certainly the case with my first novel, The Appeal, Mm. because there was no gap between me sort of stopping screenwriting and starting a novel. It's literally uh, one moment. It was a spur-of-the-moment decision to to switch, and I didn't study the, the new form that I was working in at all. So that's why the appeal, I think, sounds very um, verbal, I suppose. It has that kind of natural feel to it. As I've continued and, and, the, and the novels have progressed and I've developed as a writer, I like to think, I don't know. I think a lot more comes into play. I think a lot more of my observation of people and of the world mm. is is coming in, and I'm I'm thinking less of um, presenting things on screen and translating that into the spoken into the word on the page. Um, so yeah, I think the novels are becoming a bit more circumspect. I think, um, mm. but yeah, I would say my my focus on dialogue is and my focus on how people talk. Is, is kind of unchanged because that's a really big thing with me, with all types of writing that I've done. That's been the kind of crux of it, really. Yeah, because you're, you've also been a speechwriter as well um, in the civil service. And that to me is just, it's such an interesting, 
interesting form of writing because you're writing to communicate. You have to communicate very succinctly, but you're also communicating in someone else's voice as well. That's the weird thing about it. It's someone else and they're real. Yeah. And unlike, say, <laughs> script writing or um, or novel writing even. Yeah, they're real and they have an opinion and they have a point of view, but they have things that they want to get across. And a good speech writing starts with a dialogue with them, what they want to say, how they want to say it, whether they want the speech to be light and funny or whether it's very, very serious and, as you say, succinct and com- com- you know, information delivery. Yeah. Uh, so that all that will change. So yeah, that's it's right into a brief. Yeah, um, or in someone else's words, it is a strange thing to do. <laughs> speech writing, so it's very weird, but and strange that that's a job. But uh, yeah, it is, and it's a very, very interesting one. And I can imagine really good training ground in the similar way that journalism journalism is. That presumably you're working on very tight turnarounds for speech writing often as well. And so I guess like journalism, with having to really just you have to produce the work can be, I guess, incredible practice for when you have to turn edits around really quickly, when you have to make something work in a really short period of time. Absolutely. I mean, journalism was such a practical help to me now. And that not being afraid of a deadline Mm -hmm. um, and being able to, if you have to work up to that deadline and still keep your nerve, because keeping your nerve is really important. Because if you lose it, you lose the ability to write. So it's this vicious circle and you become less and less able to meet that deadline. But yeah, speech writing, like journalism, I had even shorter deadlines with that because I worked for a civil service communications agency. So I was only ever called in when they were desperate and against the clock. So there was never any relaxing time there. Um, Something had gone wrong or something had happened and it was always um, the pressure was on with that. So, uh, yeah, I, I can it, it allowed me to work to deadlines that are much longer now. But because what I have to write is a lot bigger and denser, um, you know, if you've got a novel is 90,000 words, it's a, a big unwieldy beast. So if you've got edits to that much, um, you know, that, that bigger document and you've only got six weeks to do it, that's quite a deadline to have hanging over you. Uh, but yeah, I can I can put that stress aside because I've had to in the past. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's what it's all taught me. Um, I think yeah. I'd say every kind of writing I've done up to now has taught me how to deal with being a novelist. Yeah. And you know what's interesting, actually? I um, I read The Twyford Code last January when it came out. Actually, I didn't read it. I listened to it. And I downloaded it without reading anything about it just because on Twitter, everyone was just shouting about it saying, you have to read this book. It's amazing. It's mind blowing. You have to read it. You have to read it. And I decided I'm like, okay, I'm just going to download it without learning anything about it without, and I hadn't read your first book. So I didn't know your style. And I have to say, when you dive into your work, not knowing what you're going to get, it is such a revelation and in, in such a in such a wonderful way I suppose I should we should maybe talk tell the reader who if, if the listener if anyone hasn't read your book that your work is not entirely in prose it's mostly transcripts emails messages all different kinds of formats make up your stories um and so as I put this on I was driving I was actually driving to Cornwall for work and which is from London like I think it was like a five and a half hour drive and so I was able to listen to half of it on the way there and half of it on the way back I was completely, my mind was completely blown. I don't think there's sort of any <laughs> other way of putting it. Partly because um, perhaps it was, it did feel slightly meta listening to an audiobook 
of somebody reading transcripts that was originally would have been recorded in audio. Yeah, that is <laughs> uh, weird. Have you listened to the audio? No, because although um, it is, as you say, it's an audio transcription, I completely wrote it as a text. And yes, of course. Beyond, and- I'm amazed that so- I've met someone who's who just listened to it. Almost well, as it as it was meant to be listened to. It was, and I I it did because obviously the actor who performs it is so brilliant, and he obviously reads out there's there's all sorts of bits and pieces in between the yeah. in between the actual dialogue, of course, as transcriptions always have extra bits and pieces, um, and it worked so brilliantly, and I was so completely drawn into it, um, but I didn't know anything about you, so when I got back, I I googled you and I looked you up, and I was like, oh. Oh yeah, so Janice is a screenwriter. That makes complete sense <laughs> to me. And it's so funny because I think um, if any any listeners out there who want to get better at dialogue, I know dialogue is something that some people really struggle with. It's something I absolutely love to read, and also I love to write it as well. Um, and your your books are a masterclass in dialogue and in in getting just the most incredible amounts of characterization across in the tiniest, tiniest spaces of time. Um, so that was really funny when I got back and I was like, oh, yes, screenwriter, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad you, you enjoyed the Twyford Code uh, audio. I, I'm occasionally asked, do you write with the audio book in mind? And, you know, I have to say, I don't at all. I, I only ever really think of the text. So when people say they've they've listened to the audio book, I, it throws me a little bit because I'm not sure how they how they um, how they read. Um, yes, I will. So there is. I do both. I listen to a lot of audio because um, with um, being a single parent with kids and having to do loads of housework and all these other things, oh. actually, audiobooks are brilliant for like when I'm cooking and cleaning and running errands and all sorts of things that I just have to do. Um, but it is a different experience and I do both. I read and I listen. Um, but I have to say the next time I was walking by a books bookshop after I listened to the Twyford Code, I had to go in and pick it up and look at it on the page because oh, wow. it's obviously not um, the way, you know, when your work as it is on the page is not like a typical kind of prose book. It sort of involves lots of different visual things to look at. And so I really want to look at it. And obviously there's lots of reasons, which I won't go into because spoilers, um, why I wanted to look at the page of the Twyford yeah. Code and be looking for codes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it was a really, it was a really interesting experience. But, um, but so I wanted to ask you about your, um, the format that you choose to write in and your, and your structure. Um, I guess I'm curious about the first time you did it with the appeal, when it went out on submission, was it, did people instantly get it, what you were doing, or was there some nervousness about the format that you chose to write in? There was half and half. There were people who loved it and got it straight away from the first page, but then there were other people who rejected it. I mean, my my agent um, spent a good few months um, sending it to people, and it, you know, it's fair to say that the response is, is mixed. Mm-hmm. And it was when it first came out, the book has, um, it had a mixed response with readers and with booksellers, with everybody. And I think now people have, like you say, got used to my style. Yeah. So that each book doesn't have that mixed response quite so much. People know whether they like it or not and they avoid it if they don't and they try it if they if they do. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's um, a different way of reading. I think it's more an active way but yeah. having said that when when I'm writing I do try and make it that there is a flow so you can switch your mind off and enjoy the words as well um, I hope 
absolutely you can. Absolutely. And it just takes almost like um, the first few pages or when I was listening to the audio, it it took me, I think, maybe 15 or 20 minutes of listening to be in slightly in the rhythm of the work. Um, But as soon as you're in it, it's so completely immersive. But as you say, there isn't there's a sense of activeness to it. But in a way, um, you know, some of the reasons we pick up crime is because we like to be an active reader, because crime involves, you know, really thinking very deeply about what's going on in the page, right? Absolutely. Yep. And I think, uh, yeah, the crime reader is a, it's a discerning reader, but they're also open as well. Mm-hmm. They're always thinking because they're always wanting to know who did it. And, uh, yeah, you have to be, well, I feel I have to be one step ahead of them all the time and they're very smart. So it's, I've got my work cut out. I can imagine. Yes. Yes. I can imagine your, your readers are very, very smart. And so that must be a little bit intimidating. In <laughs> and they're also like... wise to all the, the um, strategies I've, I've used to pull the wool over their eyes in the past. So I can't ever use the same thing twice. But can I ask as well then that why crime? Was it, was it, did you, when you decided to write fiction, did you know right from the beginning it was going to be crime? No, not really. I didn't have any thought in my head at all when I first started writing The Appeal. Um, I've been screenwriting for TV, which tended to be crime-based. I'm trying to think really of my spec scripts. Most of them had a crime sort of basis. Um so I, but I didn't actively think I'm, I'm setting out to write a crime novel, which probably goes to explain why the murder in the appeal, excuse me, <coughs> happens quite so late in the book. Mm. Uh, it's uh, something that a lot of people pick up on is that, uh, you know, the murder victim doesn't reveal themselves until much later. And I think that was because I didn't know I was writing it a murder mystery until that happened I, I very much let the characters and their situation lead the story and um well make it up as I go along basically and that and that's what happened there I, I think I'm a little more conscious now that I'm definitely writing in the crime genre and there are certain expectations mm-hmm. uh, for readers there so I try and uh satisfy those expectations while also challenging them yeah. at the same time if I can well, um, your work certainly does that. My goodness. Um, there's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Working within a, a specific genre that has very specific expectations. Um, and, and obviously all of your books in some way, some subvert some of those expectations. Um, and part of that is through the format itself, but part of it is through the fact that because of the format, um, the, the way we understand and, and learn about even the protagonist is is very subtle how we learn about their backstory as well. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. Like um because for instance in the Alperton Angels, um the protagonist is is a true crime author and she's on a new case. Well it's not a new case. <laughs> she's on a new book, which is a 17-year-old case, which um is not actually unsolved. It has been solved, but it has a huge amount of mystery around it still. Um, and so right from the beginning, we understand her through her investigating this case and we only learn about her. The bits and pieces we learn about her are all sort of within the context of this work as a true crime author. So I guess, did you know, like, did you know a lot about Amanda when you started before you started her on the case or did you learn about Amanda as she worked on the case? I learned about her as she worked and I found her to be a very 
closed character, like she wasn't telling us something about her background and perhaps why she'd arrived here where she is at this particular moment. And uh, particularly with her uh, regarding her relationship with a fellow true crime author, Oliver, um, there is something there that we don't know uh, to begin with. And um, yeah, Amanda reveals herself slowly to me mm-hmm. as, as I worked. I mean, she's certainly someone, you know, the kind of person I had observed when I worked as a journalist myself, and that she has certain elements that I have. I mean, I'm very, um, I have a tendency to become very obsessed and dedicated to a subject when I'm working on it. And, and then I'm, I find it quite easy to let go afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, she's very dedicated to her work. And we kind of find out later on why that is, why, mm. she, why she's dedicated to the exclusion of many other things in her life. Um, but yeah, Amanda, she was a slow burn for me. Mm. And I knew, I, I, I kind of felt her before I knew her, if you know what I mean. So I felt that she was this person. And then she gradually revealed herself to me as the story unfolded. That's so interesting. So I think maybe I had it in my mind that to work on stories that required, I mean, they're very, very intricate stories that you write. Um, And I guess in my mind, I assumed that meant that you had to really kind of plan and understand all of the story before you write. But so you start writing before you understand how it all fits together. Is that right? Yes. I, I set off writing without knowing a whole lot, only some vague details about the world I'm writing about and the characters that might populate it. I let them lead me and show me the way, uh, which sounds lovely, sounds like it's not organised at all and it isn't. Um, But I I use that first draft that I come up with as a kind of experiment. I think what I do is it's very experimental Mm -hmm. from the word go um, for me as well as the reader. And uh, by the time I get to the end of that first draft, I have a clearer idea what this whole is going to be about. And that's the point where I go back and I like to think I reverse engineer the plot and I'll also put in more detail that I only know when I get to the end of the story. So it all happens, well, it happens organically, first of all, and then there's, you know, a big job to be done, um, getting that sort of mound of clay into the wonderful sculpture that will eventually be released as a book. So your second draft must be um, quite a massive part of the process then, is it? My, well, the, the massivest part of the process is my first structural edit. So that's yeah. after I've done my own first draft and my editor sees it and tells me what's, what needs to do into it to bring it up to scratch or to iron things out. So that is a big um, moment and a big change and I think lots of things can change at that point, the ending, the characters, the setting, you know, all sorts of things. Oh, um, interesting. Can, so so sometimes quite a bit changes in that structural edit. Absolutely. Yeah. And I always know when when I send my first draft off to Miranda, I know it will change because I know she'll be able to see that story and that draft in a way that I can't. Mm. And um, that's that her first feedback is so valuable to creating um, what will be the finished book um I you know it's a wonderful moment when I get going on that draft it's very daunting and again what I said about holding your nerve keeping your nerve because I know that to make that good draft at the end of it I would have to break down this draft yeah break the eggs 
before I can make an omelette. Uh, so again, that's holding your nerve and knowing that it will be better by the time I get to the end of that edit. Oh gosh. Yeah. I, I've just, um, I haven't published fiction yet. I've just finished a structural edit of my first novel. And oh, it congratulations. Did feel, I did feel like I had to break it apart. It was the most terrifying thing. People had kept telling me, oh, the first draft is the hardest. The first draft is the hardest. And I wrote the first draft and I was like, okay, that was hard, but you know, and then it was actually, it was actually the second draft, that big structural edit that I found the hardest in a way, because I was like, oh no, I have to pull it. I have to pull this all apart. Mm-hmm. And that felt terrifying. But so that's really, that's really gratifying to hear that other people find <laughs> that process terrifying as well. It will be so much better when you finished it than than before when you know when you start it that that's something to head for that really excellent next draft yeah oh that's really that's really gratifying so so when you sold the appeal did it sell on its own or did you do a did you get a two book deal right away like did you know you were going to keep working with viper um i got a two book deal straight mm. away so yeah, i went straight into the twyford code yeah back to back we're, we're in um that was just before lockdown yeah my memory serves me correctly um so yeah, we'd, I'd sold the appeal and got this two book deal. So I knew I had to write another book, and um, I, I wanted to do something quite different because it was back to back with the appeal. And I thought, well, it quite be quite easy for me to it, inadvertently write the same book again mm. because I'm still in that mode, the appeal mode. So I decided to do something completely different. And whereas the appeal had been um, a vast ensemble of um, characters, a whole town full of characters in one book. I, I decided to focus on one character, the mm. Twyford Code, and to make that a man because most of the characters in the appeal were female. So I thought one male character for the Twyford Code and, and Steve Smith came into my head and started speaking. And uh, that's what happened there. So I I had a deadline with Twyford Code, which I didn't have with the appeal. Mm. Um, How was that? How was that process of um, of kind of interesting that like you know lots of people talk about their first novel as being such a different beast because nobody's expecting it yet and then the second one when there's some expectations did that did that feel very different that process because of that strangely enough no not at that point uh, maybe lockdown had something to do with it and the fact yeah. I had so much more time to complete it uh, whereas the appeal had taken me a year um Trifle code took me about eight months writing mm. um and I, I really enjoyed that time and it was very relaxing maybe it took me out of the whole lockdown covid yeah. um experience i did feel a lot more pressure while writing alperton the alperton angels because i'd all by the time i was writing that i'd become mm. a published novelist so yeah. for me that was the the time when somewhat more pressure kicked in yeah i was people gonna, had more expectations then i was gonna ask about that because in some ways like you were saying people then um knew how you wrote and and so you know they were that your readers have know that they like your work you know because your work is quite particular and and um so your readers have found you now um which must have been lovely in lots of ways whereas the peel you know was very very new for a lot of people um but at the same time all this expectation because the appeal did did so well it was a waterstones book of Book of the Year, Crime Book of the Year. It won um, uh, one of the Crime Crime Writers Association Awards. Um, it it did so well. Um, so I imagine that adds a whole layer to it when you're working on your on your third. Then when you're actually writing your third, it does. And that's something I've well, I'm, I'm learning to put aside, rather like the deadline dread that I 
successfully manage well most of the time to push aside while I'm writing uh, yeah it's another thing to discount but I, I suppose it in a way it's a good thing too because it can keep you on your toes it's I don't want to get stuck and uh, there's always a very conscious decision to do something different with each book I, I've made that decision with my fourth book which I'm writing um, now so and that's something different again from Alperton so I always stay fresh and stay different and to keep that element of experiment mm. with what I'm doing so while there might be some risk with that uh, hopefully I, I have to trust that I'm skillful enough by this stage to if things go wrong to to bring it back and to change it and to have that vision and that um, sort of skill and creativity to make it work mm. and um in a way, I guess that's sort of a gift to yourself as well as to your readers, right? To kind of to keep coming at um, the genre in in a new way and a new angle to keep it fresh. Um, I did notice in the front of um, the proof of Alton Angels that I have that it had uh, a, a, a fourth book written in the inside <laughs> cover coming in twenty twenty four, which I was thrilled to see. But so you're doing a book a year at the moment. I mean that that's a huge amount of work, not only because obviously you know, it's a lot of work to write a book every year, but it's also a lot of work to promote a book every year. It's very yeah. time consuming. Um, how are you finding the balance of those two things now? I find they complement each other. And yeah, you do have to fit it in. Um, because I mean, I'm, I have to say, when I started writing novels, I had no idea that authors did other things. I, I didn't realize they did talks and bookshop visits and book club visits and you know all sorts of festivals and that this is all part of of an author's job and uh, that was well it was terrifying at first because that's not my natural um, domain at all I'm not a talker I mean my voice is all on the page mm. and I've never had any trouble finding my voice um, with writing uh, which I think my whole career sort of speaks to but I've had a lot of trouble throughout my my life speaking up for myself literally this voice I'm using now using that but the last year since I started sort of doing promotion after you know COVID finally you know mm -hmm. meant that festivals started again um, I have learned to talk in a way that I never did in the previous 50 years of of my life so although that's that part is time consuming and it's not what I had anticipated. Through that, I've grown and changed and improved myself um, more than, you know, I had ever anticipated at all. So that's, it's been good. Um, fabulous. How that how it pans out in future, I don't know. But I mean, I hope not to have to stop writing or to, or to stop um, promoting because uh, I enjoy both and I get lots out of of both and yeah I, I i certainly hope hope to be doing everything in future oh that's so nice that you're enjoying it because it is a, it is a lot of work so it really helps if you actually you know get something out of the promotional stuff not just obviously the promoting <laughs> of your book but um that you get something else out of it which is great to hear um how is it meeting readers now and and speaking to readers about how they experience the books that's been an absolute bonus. Again, it didn't really cross my mind what it might be like to meet readers, but it's been absolutely wonderful. And I think our generation of authors are really privileged to have social media in order to connect with our readers so yeah. easily. I mean, past generations of authors, you know, readers would have to write 
to the publisher and the the letter would have to be passed on and the author would have to have time to write back. Now someone can tweet me mm. and uh, or message me on Instagram and, and I can reply and answer their question um, or thank them for reading. And, mm. you know, it's that is absolutely wonderful. And the connection is fabulous. I, I can't. Um, that's been one of the absolute joys of this this new career. Um so yeah, uh, I long you know if anybody's out there wishes to, I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram far too often. So if you want to tweet me, um, follow me, uh, do, and uh, we can have a chat. I will definitely put those links in the show notes. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I I think that's so exciting, isn't it? That interaction that can happen now. Um, some writers find it quite hard because it. Some people find it hard to switch off from that, but um, it's so it's so wonderful when it both feeds you and your work and you enjoy it as well as um it being great for readers as well but um so i'd love to ask a little bit more about um the alperton angels now um there's a dedication at the beginning of the book and another one at the end of the book mm-hmm. which um i i can't explain why because it's sort of it you know to know what the dedication is is to sort of give a little bit too much away about the book itself but um, so when I read that end dedication, which was really beautiful, um, I was curious: is is it is it what is that one of the the things that sparked the idea for the book in the first place? No, it's the one thing that I realised at the end of that first draft. That's so that interesting. This is why. This is why I'm writing this. Yeah, and this is the reason. And I think if you if you look at that that very those two dedications, explain, um, yeah, everything about that book everything yeah. why it is like it is yeah um it was it's very it's very very beautiful and um yeah that's so I'm that's so interesting that that came at the end for you at, at the mm-hmm. end of that first draft that's so that's so fascinating um so um true crime I I'm really curious about what you think it is at the moment because I feel like at the moment there, there seems to be a massive appetite for true crime in podcasts in TV in um in in books um do you have any idea what what that's about well i have to say i am a great lover of true crime i mean you name it i will i will watch it i'll read it um i i'm a you know i'm across all types of of true crime documentary uh, and film and uh, but you know i just i can't get enough even um crimes that have long since been solved mm. i will still read that new book that claims to have something new that they've discovered uh, what's it about though i mean i think we've always loved it um mm. but now there's far more platforms on which yeah. to consume it i mean the podcast is coming into its own and that's allowing people with a, a real in- investigative bone in their body to get out there and become you know citizen um police citizen investigators um if you like uh, absolutely fascinating what podcasters are doing in this uh, arena yeah, it's it's so interesting, isn't it? Um, I remember getting quite into true crime when I was a teenager. I remember my school library having a whole bunch of these kind of, I think publishers used to make series, didn't they, on like specific crimes and, you know, getting the one out about Charles Madsen and reading all about it and things like that. But, yeah, it's something about how much access we have now to information that sort of adds adding layers to it, isn't it? And it's really interesting because there's been, there's now quite a bit of crime fiction that kind of um, plays with the idea of true crime and and people's involvement in true crime, 
I'm just thinking even of like Anthony Horowitz's books where he's inserted himself into the narrative. Yes. So they're fiction. <laughs> and he yeah. becomes part of the um <laughs> of the investigation, <laughs> which is really funny. Um and and your book, um, <clears throat> Amanda, who is obviously a, cr- a true crime author, investigating, but she's very much also relying on amateur sleuths um, to get yes. extra bits of information. She's very clever at getting information from people. And so you have a whole cast of minor characters who are amateur sleuths in the book as well. <laughs> yeah, I think the the idea of the amateur sleuth is, is kind of um, coming back. I don't think it ever went because we had, uh, you know, Agatha Christie dealt with um, amateur sleuths a lot in her uh, fiction. But now we've got genuine ones. We've got real life um, people who will investigate um, cold cases as well as active ones. And uh, yeah, it's it's a joy. But I have to say at the same time as loving true crime, I do wrestle with it quite a bit because it's there's no denying that it is entertainment. Mm. And yet it is real people's lives and real trauma and tragedy and catastrophe that we consume as entertainment and enjoy consuming and um, I don't like that aspect of it in me even though I'm kind of helpless in the face of it I mean I I understand that it's a a safe space in order to explore the darkness of humanity and well I suppose it's all a bid to protect ourselves from danger Mm -hmm. and to work out why something terrible happened so that we don't um, you know fall victim in the same way Um, that's the kind of um, the contention behind it mm. but but still it's it's on that that kind of wrestling that I have is another thing that gave rise to this book because um I think Amanda yes. touches on the subject herself and yeah. uh, that's me really trying to work it out yeah I mean that's what to me is is so interesting about your work because I feel like um with each of your books there's there's all these layers going on that um that you could almost read the books multiple times and kind of pick up on different layers each time about what you're exploring. Um, <clears throat> one of the other things that you explored a bit um, is this idea of memory and and how we as humans perhaps um, falsely remember things or connect dots that maybe um, we've we're only connecting them perhaps because it's the only way we can process something that's that's happened to us. It feels like something that's happened. Is in a, in different ways in your books. Um, what is it about that idea of memory that that um that and that aspect of human behavior to kind of connect dots that maybe are disconnected that interests you? I I've always been a really nostalgic person. I've from the age of about the first time I remember feeling nostalgic is about I was about seven years old. There's not much, you know, not much time to be nostalgic in in just seven years. But my whole life has I've I've had that a great sense of it. And I've often wondered what it is. What is nostalgia? Why do we have that? And why do some people have it more than others? And I've kind of concluded that we have this um, psychological inclination to look at the past with rose-tinted glasses because it helps us move forward. It it doesn't help us to be affected by trauma, by Mm. negative emotions, by you know negativity in our past. So. We have this thing where we let go of that and we look back in, and and think of the good things rather than the bad. And I remember my my parents grew up during the war. Um, my grandmother grew up in the First World War, and that but they would all of them reminisce very happily about 
terrible things that they witnessed and awful ways of life that they had to lead in those times. But they'd be they look back on it as, you know, the best times of their life. And I don't think they were the best times of their mm. life at all. I think they just we have this inclination to look at terrible times and to get something good out of it yeah. in order to to move forward. Um so yeah, I've been fascinated by memory and how people remember things, how I remember some things different to differently perhaps to the way other people remember them. And that's a, a fascinating thing. And I think I think cause sometimes it can be annoying when someone remembers something differently to you, but perhaps they have their own need and their own reason to remember it differently. Um, or it's, maybe we have that need or that that uh, inclination to remember something differently for our own needs. Um, but yeah, it's memory is just a fascinating thing. It's it's really incredible, isn't it? It's almost like a testament to how unbelievably clever humans are you know and how our instinct for survival is so strong that we'll almost um change memories in a way or or just lose memories in in order to survive something really difficult yeah yeah it's really incredible isn't it it's just it's such a rich area for exploration especially um in you know in crime the way the way that you do um and then on on that front as well, um, in terms of how you piece the information together, um, the thing that's really fascinating to me is just is how quickly we get a real sense of all of these people and who they are. I mean, my personal favorite character in this is Ellie. Um, and <laughs> for the for the listener, um, Ellie is is um, Amanda's. Um, assistant, I guess you would call her, she transcribes a lot of her recordings um, and they've clearly worked together um, on and off over the years. Um, They're not together in person. She does it remotely. Um, And in the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest little bits of information about her, um, a whole character is born. It's just incredible. Um, All it is is when she's transcribing, she's inserting in italics her own thoughts with her initials next to them (laughs) so we know that they're hers, um, about what she's hearing, what she's assuming about what's happening that that she can't see because all she's got is recording. Um, And occasionally her own opinions and emotions come into it in very funny ways. Um, But in the tiniest little bits of information, we get such a sense of um, both Ellie, but also um, about Ellie and Amanda's relationship, Mm -hmm. um, which is so interesting. Um, I just, I don't know how you do it. (laughs) (laughs) I think it comes from, this is a, a skill that I think you pick up when you're screenwriting. Yeah. Because when you're a screenwriter, you, the main thing you do is the dialogue. I'd say the main crux of your job. And you have to get things across very um, succinctly. Mm. So in that one or two words, you have to say that character has to speak because it has to inform the director um, and the actor, as well as the you know the production people who will also be working with that script. So you do get a great sense of how we reveal ourselves through very little, yeah. through just the choice of one word or four or, or yeah. three words. Um, so yeah, that, that comes from that, but, uh, yeah, Ellie was a joy to write. I don't know if anyone, um, listening to this has ever had to transcribe something, you know, over, you know, uh, however long it would take you to transcribe. It is so boring. Yeah. It's really, however interesting <laughs> what you're transcribing, having to type what someone is saying, there's something deathly about it. It's terrible. So Ellie is also entertaining herself by um, making these comments and uh, talking to Amanda through yeah, her you, comments. You, 
definitely get the sense that first of all, she's so funny. Her she's just her observations are very, very funny and astute. <clears throat> but then there's such a warmth as well that comes across between them. And of course, we do then, as the book goes on, there are actual sort of WhatsApp messages um, between the two of them and emails, I think. But but the vast majority of Ellie we get is through her little comments on these transcriptions, which, um, yeah, I know. I think I got to the end of the book and I was just like, I feel like I know this woman. (laughs) (laughs) And all I've had is these tiny little snippets. Um, But yeah, it's really incredible. But also what we get about Amanda just from, and Amanda doesn't actually tell Nothing, not a lot goes back from Amanda to Ellie, but we learn so much about the relationship and about Amanda herself from the way that Ellie communicates with her. Um, and the kind of, I guess, almost the, the um, her ability to kind of, you know, occasionally she just kind of pulls her up or tells her off or kind of questions her in a way that you think, oh, I wonder if anyone else in Amanda's life is doing that. <laughs> Yeah, I I, uh, I like that aspect of them because I think um, while the, in the time they work together, they developed that those particular roles. Yeah. That although Amanda was senior, Ellie was the one who had had a kind of level of power mm. um, over her because she would listen to her, uh, perhaps not listen to anyone else. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I love. Uh, I do love their relationship. Yeah, that was just. Yeah, that was a joy to read. Um, and so first person narratives, and I guess I would consider your books first person narratives, even though of course you use lots of different formats. And in in this book in particular, you use screen. There's a script in there. There's um there's a few different bits of prose. In fact, actually, one of the things that I found really fantastic was um obviously Amanda's writing a true crime fiction. We get I think four or five attempts at her first chapter from different <laughs> angles on this book, yes. which is so brilliant. And I love that. Um, but, but generally it's a first person narrative or multiple first person narrative. And there's always that, um, that element of first person narratives that it's a bit unreliable in the sense of like, really, even if it's not intentionally unreliable, first person narrators are always going to have a very particular viewpoint. And so I guess, how do you, um, both play with the reader's expectations and also I with none of I none of your work I felt sort of cheated or misled or anything like that how is it that you kind of manage to kind of um sort of keep those two things in check where you're keeping information back from the reader but you don't ever I don't ever feel as a reader that I've been cheated or I've had the wool fully pull over my eyes somehow Oh, I'm glad you feel like that. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that might be down to the editing process. Yeah. Because I pay um, both, well, myself and Miranda, the editor, pay a great deal of attention uh, to when things are revealed. I always have the instinct to not reveal things. And then I end up at the end of the book with the 20 things to reveal in the space <laughs> of two pages. Uh, so then I have to go back and pace them a little bit better. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, that's one of those structural things that you have to bear in mind. What I like to do is set a, a lot of stuff up in that first draft. Yeah. And not all of it will ever be paid off. Sometimes when I go back, I'll just delete yeah. things that were set up earlier and just leave things that are relevant to that final plot that I've sorted out. Uh, but yeah, I know I'm glad it works very yeah, much. So. It does, because I have to say, I read a different book, which I'm not going to name um, last year, <laughs> that was a first person narrator who turn out to be unreliable and I I didn't it didn't feel good to me not everyone I read other reviews that people it worked for them mm-hmm. um it was a successful book in many ways but um I felt 
slightly as a reader, I had been let down. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's always a bit of a risk, isn't it, with um, with first-person narration and, and multiple first-person narration. But, um, yeah, yeah, I just... I don't know how you did it. But <laughs> as you said, I'm not sure either, truth be told. <laughs> I guess that's all, always a risk. It's one of these risks that you have to keep your nerve um, about, yeah. uh, as in the whole of the crime, crime generally. You know, you hope people like the ending because there's there's so much riding on the ending when you're reading um, the book. But so, yeah, so you do have to cross your fingers and, and hope they'll come with you. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, for crime that I've really enjoyed, I actually really enjoy rereading it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because even if I remember who did it, often the most interesting part is, is why. And sometimes I've forgotten some of the detail about why. And so that it's such, it makes maybe a couple of years later, a really enjoyable reread, because I'd sort of forgotten the nuance of the why. And the weird thing is that if you're going to forget something about a book you've read or even a film you've seen, the, the thing you're most likely to forget is the ending, is how it ends, which goes to show perhaps that's less important than the journey, yeah, than, than the journey there. Um, that's a really a weird phenomenon, isn't it? But yeah, no, I, I'm the same. I, I'll often happily reread a crime book because I've no idea who did it. And um <laughs> You know, it's it. You enjoy it again the second time yeah. because you you see things that you you didn't see the first time round. Yeah, and it's almost like you're slightly primed. Like sometimes I find if I'm rereading like an Agatha Christie or something, and it might be the second or third or fourth time I've read it, but it might have been a few years, and it'll take me till two thirds of the way through, and then I'm like, oh, now I remember. It. Yes, <laughs> but it's because you're piecing it together again, slowly piecing yes. it together, and it's almost like you can look at it in a completely different angle when you reread crime, can't you? Because you can almost look for the inner workings a little bit more as you read. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you do you enjoy crime as a genre? Is that one of the genres you enjoy as a reader? Um, yes, it's not one of the time. Excuse me, I'm just going to take a drink of water. It's not one that I read obsessively before I started writing it. I would read around everything, really. Mm. I was very eclectic. I've read a lot since, and I'm very privileged position to read books before they're released now which is is absolutely wonderful um but yeah i'm i wouldn't consider myself a connoisseur of of crime although i am learning mm. to uh, to be and, and working out where the where the genre has come from and where it might be going to um because because people now um ask me what i think of, of other authors and i want to know i want to you know read them so i'm i'm catching up slowly yeah Oh, well, thank you so much for chatting with me today about um, about Mysterious Case of the Alpton Angels. It's out on January 19th, I believe. Yes, um, that's it. It was such a joy to read. As I said, I was thrilled to get an early copy and dive straight in. Oh. Um, oh, so thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm very excited that in a year's time I get to have another one as well. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm only just uh, coming to the end of the first draft on that one. So it's a big um, unwieldy lump of clay. With no detail. It's not the sculpture yet, but hopefully it will be. Fingers crossed. All right. It will be. It will be eventually. Um, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Penny. It's been a joy. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.